Do you ever get that feeling of a sort of creeping unease? A worry that sits in your bones because today was another day of record-breaking heat? And you can't remember when it last rained? Or maybe it's because you put out a marker to track how fast the floodwater is rising outside your door. Or the wildfire smoke is making the air quality so bad that you have to wear a mask just to take your dog for a walk. And you heard about a newly planned coal project, or how Taylor Swift's private jet flights rack up more carbon emissions than over a thousand U.S. homes in a year. Maybe you start feeling that dread just from reading about it. Maybe this is making you feel it. Sorry. I might not need to tell you this, but that is climate anxiety, and you're really not alone in feeling it. Climate anxiety is not a mental health disorder. Climate anxiety is a normal response to the actual threat of climate change. That's John Hamir Benzen Aruda. He's an associate professor and research fellow in the psychology department at De La Salle University in Manila in the Philippines. I talked to him about his research back in summer, and even then, climate change intervened. Apologies for... Uh, postponing our conversation yesterday and the reason is as we speak there are three typhoons in the philippines uh, hitting the country at the same time plus a monsoon that brings heavy rain in the in many different parts of the country and you know it's uh timely because we're talking about climate change we're talking about mental health and in in the context of the philippines you know um wet seasons like uh, this, uh, which includes increasingly intensifying typhoons, you know, more frequent typhoons, it uh, causes a lot of not uh, not only physical damages and livelihood losses to many Filipinos, but also um, different emotional reactions, including mental health concerns. That's what we're talking about today. How all this climate chaos can wreak havoc on not only the environment and our physical health, but also our mental health. This is Climate Decoded, the podcast that deciphers climate change communication and untangles how different narratives illuminate or obscure pathways to climate justice. I'm Kim, and I'm here with my co-producer, Chantal. Hey, y'all. Today, we're talking about feelings. I feel very well suited for this conversation. I have so many feelings. And we're going to need all of those feelings to process this giant existential crisis we call climate change because the way we feel about it affects how we talk, think, and act on it. We're going to learn who's impacted and how. And we're going to talk about the language we use to describe climate feelings, because it can make or break our understanding of them. But we won't just leave you sitting there with all those feelings. We'll talk about how you can deal with them, and maybe help other people deal with them too. Okay, so like I said, I have a lot of feelings about climate change and otherwise. And what do we call these climate feelings? Climate anxiety is one common term, but there are a lot of different names. Ecological grief, eco-anxiety, solastalgia. Mm, Yeah, I even heard the term summer dread for the first time this year. And let me tell you, I felt that where I live in Texas in the U.S. Same here in Oregon. Part of the reason there are lots of different words is because climate change causes lots of different feelings. That's something that researchers like John are grappling with. The study of climate anxiety is only beginning and emerging. The research is even, you know, at the moment at the stage where we need to clarify the very definition of climate anxiety. 
The Climate Mental Health Network actually came out with a climate emotions wheel this year to try to reflect the variety of people's climate emotions. The emotions wheel covers a lot. You might feel guilt for contributing to climate change or overwhelm about the work ahead. Or you might feel more positive emotions like a sense of hope at a climate march. If you want some help putting some words to your feelings, we'll put links to both the emotions wheel and the research it's based on in the show notes. The effect climate change has on your emotions varies based on a lot of factors. Your age, your income, any risks you're facing, all that makes a difference. Climate justice, or rather injustice, also plays a big role. Global North countries produce the vast majority of carbon emissions, but they're not necessarily the countries most affected by climate change. Often these are global South countries, including the Philippines. And then therefore it creates kind of injustice. You know, we're not responsible for climate change, but we are suffering the most severe impact of climate change. For people from the global south who are on the receiving end of climate injustice, it's not only climate anxiety that we feel. We also might feel feelings of anger and all these moral emotions being on the receiving end of the injustice. And no matter where you go in the world, there are also people who don't directly connect the way they're feeling with climate change. But because they're victims of the direct impacts of climate change, like uh, landslides, flooding, super typhoons, etc., many would feel traumatized. Many would feel distress for the losses, you know, sometimes uh, losses of family members' lives, etc. They, they grieve, they feel depressed. So these are still mental health impacts of climate change, although the, they don't attribute that to climate change. But we know that these disasters are climate-induced. So, who all experiences climate anxiety? Who are we talking about here? Me? Definitely me. And everyone? You'd think everyone. There's clearly too many oil executives and other people who aren't experiencing enough climate anxiety, but that's a topic for a whole nother episode. But for the many people who do care deeply about climate change, it can be really hard. My name is Cielo Barrow, and I consent to being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Cielo is a second-year student at the University of Oregon in the U.S. They're part of two of the groups more vulnerable to climate anxiety. They're a young person, and they've been diagnosed with anxiety, independent of climate change. I met up with them at their house to talk about all of it. How would you define climate anxiety for yourself, or would you identify as that something that you relate with? Yeah, I think that's definitely something I relate with. I mean, I've had anxiety of all types since I was like four or five years old. Climate anxiety definitely being a big part of that. It's just, you know, I feel like it'd be almost impossible to be climate conscious without having some level of climate anxiety or some level of worry. Cielo grew up in Portland, a couple hours away from their grandparents in central Oregon. And I remember a lot of times when I was a kid, they would get evacuated for fires and they'd like come stay with us for a few weeks. I feel like forest fires is kind of like the number one thing in Oregon that you think about when you think about climate change, just because like, you know, obviously forest fires can be a natural thing, but because of the conditions that we're in, they get so much worse and they're so much more frequent. Climate change was one more heavy thing on their mind. Living in the generation where climate change is like the number one issue that people are talking about sort of justifies that impending sense of doom. Like I'm sort of have to prepare for the worst for my whole life. Cielo's feeling of having to prepare for the worst their whole life, that matches with what the research shows. 
the emerging evidence points to the reality that, you know, there are certain populations that are more vulnerable to the mental health impacts of climate change. Number one, these are young people. And the reason why they're more prone to the mental health impacts of climate change is because they are the next generation. They're the future generations who will face the more severe brunt of climate change. Okay. So young people are more likely to be affected by climate anxiety because they're the ones who will face the worst of its impact. Are there specific locations where this may be felt more frequently and intensely than others? Yeah, in fact, the Philippines is one of those places. John revealed that young people there are some of the most climate anxious in the world. This is based on the the study uh, published in the Lancet Planetary Health involving 10 countries where they found that there are more number of Filipinos, of, of young people, there are more number of young people who actually experience severe to extremely severe symptoms of climate anxiety and many different emotions. In that study, they found that 74% of the children and young people surveyed in the Philippines reported climate-related functional impact. That basically means that the feelings about climate change had a negative impact on their day-to-day functioning. 74%? That's staggering. Part of the reason why this figure is so high is because the Philippines are hit by a lot of climate change impacts, like coastal flooding and typhoons. And we're not talking about the odd typhoon here and there. We're talking about 20 typhoons a year. That's over 1,400 typhoons in an average lifetime. No wonder so many young Filipinos feel an unrelenting and negative impact on their day-to-day functioning. Okay, so along with young people and those living in hard-hit areas, Who else is particularly vulnerable to experiencing climate anxiety? Well, unsurprisingly, it's those who are already facing other kinds of hardship or injustice. For example, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to live in areas vulnerable to climate disasters or in homes that can't withstand or protect them from those disasters. Similarly, people of color, especially Black and Indigenous people, are also more likely to be affected partly because they are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis and partly because they already carry trauma from current and historic oppression. People with pre-existing mental health conditions like depression and anxiety are also more vulnerable. What I'm understanding then is that existing vulnerabilities or inequalities increase the risk of experiencing climate anxiety? Yeah, that's about the size of it. Now we know more about the what and the who of climate anxiety. How about the way it manifests in people's lives? No matter who you are or where you're from, climate feelings stack on top of each other. Fears about global food shortages or the collapse of the insect population pile on top of rage about climate injustice and willfully ignorant politicians. Even preparing for climate change-related hazards can cause anxiety. I live in Oregon in the U.S., And my parents were evacuated from their house because of a wildfire a couple of years ago. There's this very immediate anxiety when you're trying to make the call about when to evacuate your home. You're listening to the radio for when it gets to level three, go now. And then what do you bring? What if you never see your house again? And even if you get out of the hazard's range, what happens after? Like you evacuate before the typhoon, but when you come home, the house is full of mold or your well got contaminated. The pile of things that causes anxiety just gets bigger. This is a terrible teetering tower of Jenga-stacked feelings. Yeah, pretty much. I talked about all these feelings with Ayomide Olude, 
She's the program manager for the Eco-Anxiety Africa Project, also called TEEP. And that's a part of Susti Vibes, a youth-focused climate organization based in Nigeria. She and her co-workers encountered another emotion when they talked with climate elders. Grief about a future altered by climate change and other environmental problems. So, for example, you know, in the Niger Delta, because of oil drilling, there has been a lot of oil pollution and environmental degradation. I think that's even one of the most, you know, degraded places in the world. We interviewed this elder and, you know, she spoke about being able to play in the creeks and, you know, being able to notice the mangroves and connect with nature that way. And when she had children, they didn't see these things. They only saw oil and they saw dead fishes and you know that was a very emotional thing for other people you have them you know worried that young people would not experience the you know the diversity they experienced on earth and the fact that this loss is irreversible so there is that worry you know for them and those are some of the you know the 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 feelings that come up for these people grief rage fear anxiety This giant pile of climate feelings affects how people live their lives. In the short term, it can change how you live your daily life. There was a survey done in Tuvalu, an island country in the Pacific Ocean at significant risk from sea level rise and storm damage. 87% of the people who took the survey said they had such severe climate anxiety that it impaired their ability to perform at least one daily activity. On the other end of the timescale, in the long term, more and more people give climate change as a reason for not having kids. Some polls suggest a third or more of Americans younger than 45 are planning on having fewer or no children at all because they're worried about climate change. Yeah, and climate distress is also reshaping people's professional ambitions. Like, if you have the privilege to do so, is there a moral obligation to direct at least some of your professional work to addressing the climate crisis or other justice issues? Are our career choices sustainable ones? I can think of at least three friends just off the top of my head who have majorly altered their careers and life trajectories so they're working on climate change, which actually makes me feel more hopeful and empowered knowing that there are good people, friends, out there working on this giant existential crisis. All these feelings change us in bad ways and maybe in some good. So, everybody has these big climate feelings happening, shaking up their lives, from daily experiences to big future life planning. Given that, it seems super important to understand how people are thinking about, talking about, and experiencing climate anxiety all around the world. Ayomide said that's actually part of the reason why TEEP and the larger organization Sussy Vibes were started. It was founded in 2022, you know, to address the knowledge gap on climate change and mental health in Africa. We realized that people were talking about eco-anxiety, but it was more from the global north and, you know, not from our experience and our point of view as Africans. So we just aim to understand and validate these feelings, you know, for Africans and from an African perspective. And how do they do that work? Well, the validation part comes more through the project's community action and support work. The understanding part is through the research. Like, for example, they're doing a survey right now all about the experience of eco-anxiety in Nigeria. There's a link in the show notes. 
Is research like that happening in a lot of places? It's certainly happening a lot more. Right. Though I remember what the psychology professor, John Hamir Benson-Aruda, said earlier. This field of research is pretty young. And John said one of the things that complicates the research is the language we use to talk about climate anxiety. And I mean that quite literally. The research is super biased towards English. Doing psychology research, which often involves, you know, emotions, experiences, you know, in contexts like the Philippines and, of course, many other countries as well, uh, language can be a barrier. One of the Philippines' official languages is English, and many Filipinos can speak English. But even then... In the context of climate anxiety, Filipinos, in, in, my, in my general observation, better express themselves in a com- combination of, we call it Taglish, Tagalog and English. Filipinos who had more access to education can speak both languages, and therefore Taglish. Those who had less access to education usually rely more on languages other than English. The Philippines has almost 200 languages and dialects. <laughs> yeah. So naturally, those, uh, those who would prefer their expressing themselves in native language would express themselves and their experience of climate anxieties and many other emotions in their native language. So if John talks to those populations in his research, what does he do? Does he hire local translators? Yeah, I mean, with that many different languages and dialects, hiring local translators is definitely necessary. But speaking a language doesn't mean the exact right words exist. Even when John is working in Tagalog, they have to use the English term, climate anxiety. There's no direct translation of climate anxiety. We use climate anxiety. But the symptoms of anxiety in general, there are some Tagalog versions or translations. For example, uh, there's a term, aligaga, which is, you know, basically a behavior commonly observed for among anxious people. Do you know what that behavior is? Yeah, it means being frantic, hurrying, basically me trying to gather my brain together before we started recording. <laughs> I feel that. Even without having a direct translation of climate anxiety, people are obviously still feeling it. How does that work? Having a feeling but having to borrow a word from a different language to describe it? It feels like no matter what, a borrowed term could never precisely describe the way you feel in a different language. Definitely. And having no direct translation for climate anxiety means researchers like John have to dig in deeper and figure out the right words in a given language. He's actually working on a research paper right now all about translating psychological terms like depression, stress, and anxiety. So we translated this original English version of the psychological test uh, into Filipino. And what we found is that uh, there are many uh, symptoms that are not represented in Filipino. To translate the test, they had to do layers and layers of translations and revisions and consultations and pilot testing. One of the issues he ran into was the use of idioms, like the term wind down. On the psychological test, there's an item, I find it difficult to wind down. Right. There's we don't know what wind down is. We don't have a you know a direct translation of that. If you use a psychological test that's written in English and your client or participants are not native speakers of English, you know, you might not be able to capture, you know, the full experience and you might actually misdiagnose. That seems like a huge problem. It is. They actually were able to compare their translated psychological test with previous studies that used the English version. Their Filipino translated version identified a greater percentage of people experiencing anxiety and depression. So basically, the English version kind of underestimate, you know, the symptoms. 
you know, and therefore fail to identify and detect those individuals who actually have uh, moderate, severe to extremely severe symptoms of psychological distress. It will have implications on, you know, your diagnosis. You know, if you have misdiagnosis or you fail to diagnose existing mental health problems, then you wouldn't be able to provide the best possible or most effective intervention. And ultimately, it compromises client welfare. So if the global understanding of climate anxiety uses just English or any one language or cultural context as the default, a huge part of the issue will be missing. Well, when you put it that clearly, it is not at all surprising that this is a problem. And if that doesn't get changed, a lot of people are going to go unheard and unsupported. More research is needed to develop psychological tests that's unique to a certain country, certain population, using their most preferred language to ensure that you know they really capture you know, their full experience of climate change and the full experience of mental health and its nexus. Before we continue, we want to tell you about a show from our friends over at The Conversation that we love listening to. In The Conversation Weekly, academic experts talk to host Gemma Ware about the fascinating discoveries that they're using to make sense of the world and the big questions they're still trying to answer. You'll get a bit of everything, from the techniques being used to search for new antibiotics to the environmental messaging behind the brandalism spoof advertising movement to a deep dive into the history of the Israel-Palestine peace process. What's so powerful is that they talk directly to the researchers who spend their whole lives studying a topic, and it always leaves us feeling a whole lot smarter. New episodes come out every Thursday. Find it by searching for The Conversation Weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now, back to climate anxiety. This all begs the question, what support do people need? We know people are experiencing climate anxiety all over the world. How do we deal with it? Well, one way to reduce climate anxiety is kind of obvious. Just actually address the source of the anxiety, aka climate change, reduce our global emissions, implement sustainable solutions, etc. So if we accept that as a given... I like accepting that as a given. There are so many things we can and are doing to actually address the source of the problem. So there's just actually addressing climate change. That's a solution. But then there are the things we can do that address climate anxiety more directly. It has to be a multi-level kind of solution. You know, we work on individual level solutions, which will not happen without, you know, systemic change or solution. What we want in the, the ideal scenario is a society that really pays attention to climate change and mental health and their intersection. How about we start at the small end, one person? How can one person deal with their climate anxiety? One of the biggest ways to deal is that always great solution when things get really hard. Therapy! We have to talk about our feelings. I went straight to the source to learn about this. I'm Thomas Doherty. I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm a licensed psychologist that specializes in in clinical and environmental psychology. How do you even get into doing environmental psychology? Well, he started out on the more informal side. He worked with youth outdoor programs and was a river rafting guide. 
at that time, I was really interested in why is nature restorative and how to understand what I had observed with the young people out on wilderness tracks and what I'd seen and with the, all the customers that go down the Grand Canyon and on the river and have a life of these life changing experiences. So that was the interest that led me actually to want to be a psychologist and get into that. He stuck with that interest when he became a psychologist. He was actually on the American Psychological Association's first climate change task force. And a lot of his work now focuses on climate-aware therapy. At its simplest, that means adding climate change to the list of things every therapist should know about. There are sort of what is known, what are known as best practices. Like all therapists should know certain things about certain issues. You know, all therapists should be somewhat familiar with human development and relationships and basics about depression and anxiety, issues like ADHD. These are the things that people are struggling with. And then a smaller class of therapists are wanting to specialize in this area and be, you know, climate conscious therapists more directly, just in much the same way that a therapist may specialize in any other kind of issue to help people. More and more, there are training programs to help therapists practice climate aware therapy. Thomas actually trains therapists on this. Ayamide and John are also working on that. So what does climate aware therapy actually look like? If I were to sit down on his therapy couch and talk about my climate grief and overwhelm, where would we start? He might start with helping you frame your feelings. One of the frameworks he uses is this idea of big I issues, like issues with a capital I, and little I issues, issues with a lowercase I. The big I issues are what we've already been talking about, like climate change, social injustice, and inequality, the huge issues we're worried about and want to change. And that's different from the little eye issues. Which is our own stuff, our own style, our own psyche, our own personality, our own strengths and weaknesses, our neuroses. And that sets a whole stage for, for counseling then. We don't lose the big issues that people want to work on. Because I want them to be good citizens and I want them to take action in the world. But it also doesn't lose the, the reality of life. That's where the what I call our personal sustainability and our self-care comes in is in that lowercase i area. And I can take the healthiest person in the world, most well-adjusted person, and if I set them to work on capital I issues for six months to a year, they're going to develop some lowercase i issues of fatigue, burnout, despair, questioning. I love how this normalizes these climate feelings. Exactly. That validation is part of climate-aware therapy. There's this three-step process Thomas keeps in mind when working with clients. And the first step is to validate. Once people bring something in, just, you know, validate. This is this is a real thing. I mean, um, these are all valid concerns because you have to understand people are often unsure if they're valid. They might be in a place where they're questioning whether this is something that they should, they should talk about. There is a lot of polarization and socialized denial. And then the next step is elevate. Let's make this the most important thing. Let's talk about this because there's an expectation that my concerns about environment are going to be lower on the list of priorities than, say, my job or my family. But no, let's put it number one. That's a radical thing. That that, that would be kind of a climate-aware therapy thing to do. The last step can be a bunch of different things, depending on which particular word that happens to end in eight people need. Validate, elevate, create. And then let's get creative about it, like validate, elevate, educate. Do we need to get more information? Validate, elevate, delegate. Do I need to kind of get help? Validate, elevate, moderate. Do I need to t tone it down a little bit? Uh, validate, elevate, meditate. Do we just need to sit with this because it's a big issue? I mean, I, I can, you know, go in all kinds of 
play on words, but it, it gives you a sense of you've made it important, you've raised it. And then the creativity is, is key because it smuggles in a little positive emotions at, at the outset. And we know that positive emotions lead people to be more creative and more resilient. This feels accessible. Obviously, it would be great if everyone had easy access to therapy, but a lot of people don't. So this idea of validate, elevate, and create or meditate and so on, you can do that with your friends or even do it with yourself. Totally. And there are a lot of other simple, practical things you can do to help manage your climate anxiety in the moment, like mindful breathing, reflective journaling, and talking through your feelings with your community. So basically, a lot of things that can help in any moment of intense emotions, but with a climate bent. Exactly. And if you want to dig in more, the Climate Mental Health Network actually has a bunch of resources and worksheets for the reflection side of this. They help you work through things like the resources you need for taking action, how you can use your unique skills to take action, what you can do to avoid burning out, and more. We'll put links to those resources and some others in the show notes. But here's the problem. No matter how much therapy we get, no matter how much we journal and meditate, climate change is still here. And so are all the other big eye issues Thomas talked about, like economic inequality, racism, toxic stuff in the water. There are so many big things to worry about. I talked with Ayomide from the Eco-Anxiety Africa Project about this. One person cannot do the work because it is not just the climate crisis. It is very complex. It is our sociopolitical crisis. The impacts of climate change, including anxiety, are often mapped on existing inequalities. So you can't deal with climate anxiety without also looking at the stress caused by those other inequalities. Ayumide has talked about this with community members through some of TEEP's programs. People understand that climate change is real, but speaking from our experience here, yeah, somebody who is just trying to survive, you know, daily and just find, uh, you know, meals to eat, you can uh, tell them to be overly concerned about the climate change or environmental degradation. The stresses of these problems are all interlinked. The good thing is that if the problems are all linked, the solutions are all linked too. Everything is interconnected. We have to work together. And these people need justice. And they need justice, you know, through provision of resources, um, access to safe drinking water, access to education, you know, access to um, their basic human rights, you know, food, clothing, shelter. I think when people can stop thinking about this, you know, we'll have more people have that drive for climate action. So that means getting governments, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, everybody to make systemic change on both climate and non-climate issues. It's something we have to tackle at the root cause. And tackling it at the root cause is holding people in authority accountable, holding people with this power accountable, you know, having them lead real transformative change. Real transformative change. That's what we want. The scales of these climate anxiety solutions are pretty wildly different. Like, go to therapy and also overhaul all systems of power and oppression. How can one person apply this? How can we move the needle and contribute to change that benefits everybody? By taking action. That can look like a lot of different things. Right. Like, you can get involved in research like Iomide and John. Along with John's research on language differences, he's interested in quantifying the mental health consequences of climate change. 
He's also part of a big new interdisciplinary group looking at different climate change and mental health research opportunities. Or you can get involved in climate anxiety-related education and training, both for therapists like Thomas is doing, or for the general public. Or you can run for office or get involved in climate activism. We have a whole episode on climate activism, actually. You should go listen to that. Or you can even start or work with community groups to talk through your climate feelings and potential solutions. Those conversations about climate anxiety spread far and wide. Iomides found this through TEEP's research. We have elders say the fact that we had this space to talk about our feelings, you know, has motivated me to talk to my friends about this, speak to my children who don't know about climate change about this. Sometimes people feel very powerless and, you know, feel like they don't have agency. But having that space, you know, a validating space is a way for people to know I have agency and if I can speak to one person, action comes from you know, one individual being enlightened and, you know, it spreads from that, yeah. Because here's the thing. There's good research evidence that having climate anxiety fuels people's desire to do climate action. There's also good evidence that doing climate action makes you feel less climate anxiety. And doing that work can change the system so others feel less climate anxiety too. And with less climate anxiety, we can talk, think, and work on the central problem of climate change even better. So we've processed a lot of feelings in this episode. Where does that leave us? So many feelings. Well, we know that how we feel affects how we think, talk, and act. And we all face different worries, some more pressing and immediate than others. So adding the stresses of climate change can hit even worse in those cases. But we also know that climate anxiety isn't something to necessarily be pathologized. It's actually a natural response to a terrible, complicated problem we all face. My mom has this thing she always tells my sister and me whenever we're navigating a very big, very real problem. This is objectively hard. I love that. I think there's so much value in acknowledging that something just sucks in the moment, much better than pretending the problem doesn't exist. Cielo, the college student I talked to, also mentioned this. They're one of the young people who will be facing this climate-changed future for a long time. But knowing they're not alone in their feelings really helps. I think it's really hard to not feel helpless. But I think sometimes the weird reminder that other people feel a little bit helpless too is like almost in kind of like a little bit of a dark way. kind of makes you feel better because it's like, okay, I'm not the only one feeling this like many people actually experience this. And that it's not just like an isolated thing. Yeah. Moving forward, we need to learn a lot more about climate anxiety across different groups, cultures, and languages. And what we learn should inform all the solutions we have, from therapy and community support to changing international climate policy. Working on those solutions can help with not only your own climate anxiety, but also other people's anxieties. There's one last climate anxiety solution that a bunch of the people we talked to all mentioned. And it is also something my mom would say, go play outside. Even if it's brief, even if it's between climate disasters, the research backs this up. Get out in nature and help make it possible for others to do it too. Cielo talked about feeling the impact of this after a particularly hard hike. I remember getting there and just feeling so grounded and very like in with my body. And I think also like being in nature sort of helps with that climate anxiety. Like it's not all gone yet. There is so many things that are left to be done, but there's also still like so much hope and things to be had. And I think sort of like flipping around that mindset I often have about issues like this 
sort of just takes being outside and being like, no, it's okay. There's like a hundred other people doing this crazy hike, you know, like I'm not the only one. And um, I think seeing that is just really beautiful. And I just like whenever I feel like sort of like unsure of things, I feel like just being outside just like makes everything so much better. And just like that, with this episode, we've reached the end of season one. We've covered a lot of ground this season, from the IPCC to activism to the Global Climate Conference, or COP, and finally, anxiety. Thanks so much for joining us. Season two of Climate Decoded is currently in production and will be released in 2024. We're jumping into a lot of topics like climate litigation, the concept of net zero, and a whole lot more. This is really a passion project for all of us, something we do alongside the other jobs we have, so we're super thankful to be able to keep it going into a second season. As always, we really appreciate any support. Sharing the show with a friend or donating a cup of coffee on Patreon really goes a long way. So thank you. We can't wait to build off everything we've learned so far. See you soon for season two. You've been listening to Climate Decoded. This episode was produced by Isabel Bodish, Chantal Koff-Schultz, Greg Davies-Jones, Lara Davies-Jones, Kim Kenny, and Jens Vendel-Hansen. More info about this episode, a transcript, and resources can be found in the show notes and on our website, climatedecoded.com. Follow us on all the socials on Instagram, LinkedIn, and the place formerly known as Twitter at climate underscore decoded. If you'd like to support the show, please hit that follow button on your podcast pipe of choice and drop us a rating or review. It honestly makes a big difference in enabling other people to find the show. You can also consider subscribing to our Patreon channel. For $5 a month or about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can really help out the podcast. And with that subscription, you'll also get exclusive content and more behind the scenes about our episodes. A final great way to support the show is simply referring it to a friend. It really helps us grow our audience and get more people thinking and talking about and acting on climate change, which is ultimately our goal with Climate Decoded. Talk again soon.